Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned in to The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docuseries in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional experiences of educators of color. I'm your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language art specialist for Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. In this episode, our last episode, we will explore the power currently being harnessed by educators of color to provide an equitable and just education despite encountering unique challenges. Throughout the episode, we'll be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias and its role in our work and learning. I hope the reflections in this episode and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, engaging, necessary, and courageous conversations that you can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. If you're just tuning in, I encourage you to listen to the previous episodes which explore the experiences of educators of color before, during, and right after chattel slavery, continuing into the Jim Crow era, U.S. expansion, and post-civil rights experiences. Last episode, we explored the ways a nationwide call for rigorous standards aligned and misaligned with the practitioner legacies of educators of color. Demonstrating high expectations through collaborative, meaning-oriented, patterned, and relational content and instruction was nothing new to black and brown teaching norms before and during our time in this country. However, as noted in episodes 6 and 7, it can be particularly challenging to do so now for a wide variety of reasons ranging from losing legacies of practice to finding ourselves in systems that can encourage our worst practice. Speaking of lost legacies, it is the work of education torchbearers like Asa Hilliard that remind me to focus on not just how we were and are being subjugated in education, but how we successfully succeed despite it. Lisa Delpit in her book Multiplication is for White People highlights the same focus. Pretending like the history of educators and students of color is so full of losses that there couldn't be any resistance, resilience, and wins today would be nonsense. Every day in school buildings, central offices, and community institutions, educators of color are saying no to things like implicit bias and structural racism, and yes to professional practices that are engaging, affirming, and meaningful to who they are and who their students are. What resources and movements reflect this devotion? How can we support each other in the process? And lastly, what can those who wish to be allies do to be of support in the process? There could be such a doom and gloom narration in education. I myself can certainly contribute to it. It's easy to do with so many issues that can exist in education from the classroom to Congress, but the problem with contributing to that narrative is that we can worship the problems instead of praising and supporting the good work happening in pockets. Problem identification becomes problem gazing, and problem gazing becomes solution paralysis, fixating on the weeds in our profession, promoting the suffocation of the flowers. So in an attempt to fixate on the flowers in service of suffocating the weeds, let's dive into what is happening and what can happen with the building and reclaiming of the legacies educators of color add to the classroom, community, and country. Vanessa Siddle Walker was an inaugural guest on this podcast series and is the author of The Lost Education of Horace Tate and several articles that chronicle the history of black educators. 
she submits that we need to re-explore the African-American pedagogical model and cites a school that models this exceptionally. So I think when we think about some of the pedagogical strategies of black educators, they weren't just embodying the care ethic because, you know, they were just nice people, right? They weren't just glorified mammies. They understood certain strategies about how to teach, about how to engage communities, about ways to enter communities, about ways to to get children to be ambitious. I mean, there were things that they understood about how to use the tools that they had. And I don't think we teach enough of that. And because we don't, where we see it transmitted is haphazard. But in cases that I know of where we have seen it transmitted, we see today similar kinds of successes as we see historically. So a Pam Benford, who was principal of Cedar Grove High School here in Georgia, in her urban high school did many of the things that I write about historically. She learned how to do that from a mentor who had learned how to do it from the segregated era, right? So it came not through teacher training, right, but through another mechanism. But she used these same strategies, and I would just be stunned when I went into her school to see the same kind of care ethic and elevation of children and professional development and seeking help with parents. I mean, she she modeled it almost exactly. And if you were to look at stats for her school, awards, you see them increasing every year that she was principal there. And she's just doing the things that are part of our history. I have reason to believe that if we were to appropriate more of the thinking about how African-American teachers taught, if we were to really be serious about uh, teaching it, um, I think we could make a difference in more school climates. While as Dr. Siddle Walker notes this work is being retrieved and revived by black educators, how are we expanding the roster of potential black educators to continue to build this work? Sharif Elmeki's charge as the CEO for the Center for Black Educator Development is to disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline and build the school-to-educator activist pipeline for black students. Elmeki explains what this looks like and how the center is currently tackling this goal. So the Center for Black Educated Development, we have four pillars. Um, one is advocating for uh, policies that support educational justice issues, whether it's fair funding, whether it's uh, high quality education, whether it's a collective accountability, whatever is going to help drive to better educational outcomes. Uh, those are policies we want to advocate for. Uh, the other one is, is pedagogy, which we spoke about before, like centering and lifting up the pedagogical practices of, of Black educators that have been historically sound, historically successful, but you never hear about them in, in, uh, in policies and practice and, and, uh, and pedagogical frameworks uh, in most teacher colleges. Uh, then professional learning, like everyone, whether you're a school board member, superintendent, principal, or educator throughout, like you should constantly be going through professional learning experiences you know, opportunities to reflect uh, on your practice, opportunities to, to be pushed and challenged by yourself, as well as your colleagues and peers, 
um, and students, right? And so that this coaching and mentoring and feedback loops um, all had to be part of this professional learning experiences. And then lastly, the pipeline. And we use Freedom Schools as our main uh, pipeline. So we have dual enrollment, we have, uh, you know, uh, you know, workshops for youth. Our, our main thrust is teacher apprentices, apprenticeships that support um, that we use Freedom Schools as the model. Um, and we believe that the pipeline is absolutely crucial and that students as early as ninth grade and high school can learn some pedagogical practices. They can understand and internalize the, the, the concept of lift as you climb. And as you're learning and as you're studying and as you're growing, you can also help a first, second and third grader learn and grow and build at the same time. And you can work intergenerationally to support our community um, through you know, our staff, through uh, the college students, the high school students, as well as the, the young scholars in first, second and third grade. So policy, professional learning, pedagogy and pipeline uh, are what we, we believe in because we, it's not just the recruitment of you know, more black and brown teachers, that's a part of it, but a big part of recruitment is retention. You know, a great recruitment strategy is a strong retention plan because who better to talk about why you should come here, uh, you know, than the folks who say, this is why I stayed. This is why I came and this is why I'm still here, right? That is the best recruitment. Those are the ambassadors to the public. Those are the ambassadors to the next generation of, of educators. This sounds like a pedagogy and policy dojo for black teachers who want to change both the depth and complexion of the profession. <laughs> Dope. It was also great to hear on the other side of the country, my indigenous brothers and sisters are establishing a similar pipeline. University of Arizona professors Jeremy Garcia and Valerie Shirley direct and design curriculum for the Indigenous Teacher Education Project, which guides indigenous education students at the university to learn how to harness and strengthen their traditional ways of teaching and learning to best serve the students in indigenous nations. Professors Garcia and Shirley explain the power and process of their program. Right now, the program is fairly novice in its, its orientation. We just graduated a cohort of 15 students um, from the Tonawatam Nation, the Batsquayaki Nation, the Hopi Nation, and Navajo Nation. And the, right now, they are in their, currently in their first year teaching, and so we are actually looking to see the, the impacts of the type of experiences they had as a part of our, our program here at the University of Arizona. And some of the things that we are, are learning is that certainly we know that the process of be, becoming a teacher uh, is something that, that grows with time and experience. And we value that they're trying to sustain the framework that we have been following, uh, which relies on this idea of it's got four components to it. One is the uh, centering of knowledge, indigenous knowledge, values, and language systems. Another component is the idea of of, of justice-centered pedagogies. And a third one is this idea of the teachers as nation builders. And there's a fourth piece to that, which is this idea of thinking about what is the role of critical indigenous theories and how does that inform the, the work that teachers uh, can do with their students. So given that, our teachers right now, the graduates, um, there are pockets where they are, they are working to infuse that pedagogy and find balance because 
we know that there are pressures to adhere to state standards, assessments, uh, for example, you know, upholding math, uh, literacy, writing. So, so all of those are in competition with how do we infuse indigenous knowledge and, and systems into that process. So they are our, our leaders in terms of how uh, we can inform the trajectory of where the field is going for indigenous teacher education, but also indigenous curriculum and pedagogy. I have also done some work with Hopi teachers uh, who have been excellent uh who provided an excellent uh, insight to the process of what it means to engage youth in thinking critically and to take lead and take an action. I think one example comes to mind where we have teachers who, one teacher, Movasta uh, Bryant Hunyatu from the village of Hotbella, will engage his, his class of students to examine the Pueblo Revolt um, that happened early on uh, to the region here with the Spanish influence. And in that process, he's he's doing this to activate and to sustain this notion of truth-telling of the history, but also to inform the Hopi youth that, you know, history repeats itself. And how will we be prepared, how will they be prepared to sustain their communities and as protectors uh, through the knowledge that they're gaining through this, through remembering this history? In doing so, what we learn is that it activates a certain kind of emotion. Um, so the next one of the strands to consider in that process is how do we take care of ourselves in the process because it act activates this idea of historical trauma. So one way that these educators are, are responding to that over time, he has adapted his, his uh, curriculum to uh, infuse a return to Hopi values and knowledge um, processes to engage in a form of healing. So he does uh, some things with his students that help recenter them in that process after going through this sort of emotional uh, activation of, of this, this traumatic history. The other piece, the other example I'll give is, is learning from another educator in the Hopi community, uh, Samantha um, Honani, who was a elementary teacher and uh, engaged her students in looking at the high levels of arsenic water in the village um, that the school was, was uh, serving. And out of that, her second grade students in, in uh, affiliation with a group of other students there were able to learn about water from a Hopi perspective. And in doing so, they understood its relationship to various ceremonies, but then they al aligned that with, so why is it that... Um, for example, one student said, why does my grandmother have to buy bottled water? And it was that question that generated her activism, uh, Samantha's moment to uh, engage her students in curriculum that, one, examined water and the processes of water cycles, et cetera, but from also a Hopi lens, and then to engage in justice-centered work by by drafting a letter, her students drafting a letter, and they uh, presented that letter to the Hopi Tribal Council as a form of uh, request to take action. So, so those are examples of ways in which critical indigenous pedagogy is coming to fruition. Uh, is it widely done? Uh, I would say no, but is it a movement? I think so. In hearing Garcia, 
Shirley and Omeki talk about their highly structured, culturally centered professional development programs for aspiring and current educators of color. It helps me feel truly grateful and lucky to have had a similar experience during my time in the Rochester City School District. Dr. Susan Goodwin, Yolanda Montalvo, Ellen Swartz, and many other veteran teachers in the Rochester Teacher Center set up a mini Wakanda-like environment for educators of color, white ones as well, to affirm and expand their cultural lenses as organic pathways to lead their communities with exceptional teaching. It is important to know about these initiatives, especially the Grow Your Own programs like Denver's Pathways to Teaching or Skagit Valley's Supported Teacher Pathway or Lipscomb University's Pionero program, Clemson University's Call Me Mister or national programs like Educators Rising and Teacher Cadets. According to a report by New America, 47 states have GYO programs like these, but funding and support for them are widely varied. If the public school student population is over 50% non-white, what would happen to the socio-political and professional environment of education if these grow-your-own programs were consistently supported? What else can happen at this moment in time? How can we further reconnect potential and current educators of color to their long legacies of exceptional practice? Well, often my knee-jerk reaction with stuff like this is to immediately commit to action. But in large part due to studying the books The Art of Coaching and The Art of Coaching Teams, both by Elena Aguilar, I recognize there is probably some meditation on internal and external truths that should happen so that there's a response to a need for action and not a reaction to one. I got a chance to speak with Elena Aguilar, the instructional coaching guru, and the former Oakland school teacher and coach, and she shared what some of these reflection points can be as we dive into this work. I love centralizing and surfacing the importance of intersectionality because what that does immediately is complexifies our experiences and who we are. And one of the mechanisms by which systems of oppression work is that they create massive generalizations and then try to indoctrinate people into seeing each other through these mass generalizations and then to respond to each other in that way. And the complicated and beautiful thing about being a human being is that we have such different experiences, which are in great part because of the different identity markers that we hold, that we live through. And so I just, I think that we would have far more interesting conversations if we centered intersectionality. It would prevent us from making assumptions about each other. It would help us to be more curious about each other. It would help us to see patterns and experiences, but also the unique perspectives and gifts that people bring. So I think it would be liberating. When Aguilar brings up these important points of context, it makes me feel a bit anxious because I know keeping these things in mind requires a recalibration of pace. I really hate slowing down sometimes, much like my former students who would rush through a read-aloud passage, disallowing for their oral fluency skills to organically accrue. If we want to organically develop fluency, with the challenge of supporting educators of color in a system that often discourages it, we will have to steady our thinking and contextualize our emotions and frictions about ourselves and each other in healthy ways. This is an important bedrock for the work moving forward. 
University of Washington Bothell professor Wayne Au, an early voice in this podcast series and editorial board member of Rethinking Schools magazine, submits that this work moving forward should center on one principle, organization. If educators of color can be organized, and when they do organize, because they do in all sorts of spaces, that they're powerful voice for shaping curriculum and, and serving, serving students, right? You know, we're seeing different, uh, you know, teacher identity groups popping up in various spaces, um, or, you know, teachers of color helping push the union uh, to be even stronger advocates for, for racial equity. And so I definitely think there's a role for leadership from, from teachers of color um, to, to help move this stuff forward, if we can keep them in the classroom. The importance of organization must take many forms for its many contexts. Professor Vanessa Siddle-Walker submits that in order for black people to revive and sustain their distinct connection and excellence to the practice of teaching, there must be collaboration between the academy experts and the grade school experts. I think secondarily, we can think more about the connections and collaborations that existed but that no longer exist. Not, Not no longer. They are more sporadic now. I am indicted when I look at uh, the people that I have come to call my absentee mentors. That is the um, black intellectuals of earlier generations. I can place Horace Mann Bond and Du Bois and any number of people in Allison Davis. I can place them in these teacher networks They didn't do their work separate from the black principles. They were in conversations together about what the children need and and how we can get this information to the children and how do we need to be proactive, right? They're in conversations together. I think it's unfortunate that in educational research today, we do not naturally fall organizationally in meetings with our natural constituent groups, right, the natural stakeholders. So we are disconnected from one another in ways that the history indicts. Um, And again, we do it as individuals, but you don't see the kind of organizational collaboration and vision that you see historically. And I want to be clear, it's not that the organizations work well together all the time, right? There's infighting, as one would expect. But you can only have infighting when you bother to have collaboration, right? Infighting presupposes that we're trying to figure out how to work together. And so I think we could begin with trying to figure out how to collaborate um, in ways that we really haven't done so. Those are a couple of the ideas that I think would be important today. But I don't think an individual teacher graduating can just himself or herself go out and suddenly make all of this better. I think it's a collective responsibility and we cannot pour it onto the teacher to just do it herself, right, or himself. This is a joint issue, a joint challenge, and I think we have to be collaborative and work conjoined um, to, to solve the problems. 
Speaking of continuing the connection between the academy and the grade school, Columbia University professor and author of the books for white folks who teach in the hood and Ratchademic, Reimagining Academic Success, Chris Emden specifically names historically black colleges and universities as being in a unique position for this pipeline work that can potentially curb the white revolving door that tends to take place in public education. I think what happens is in this interest of catching up with and being, ex um, being able to be as successful as whoever else it is, we have abandoned the fact that the core of our culture has been about teaching. We have HBCUs that don't have strong teacher education programs. Uh, and, 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 and this is not to say that we want everybody just to be teachers, but I'm saying that you, you can have a teacher education double major with economics, physics. Here's the thing about the, the, the Du Bois narrative. He could not have been the black intellectual giant he was if he did not teach first. I think that for me, teaching is the training ground of the revolutionary. Some folks will go to the battleground of the training ground and decide, hey, the army's for me and stay there. Some folks will go to the training ground for their three, four years and say, hey, I think I might be able to do something else, but still give back. But either way, the training ground for black intellectuals in this country historically has required a path to and through the classroom. When you engage in and work with young people, you start finding and knowing yourself and knowing your path. Sometimes your path stays there, sometimes it goes beyond. I'd rather have educators of color go into communities and then decide to go a different path than this revolving door of white folks from TFA who have no real connections to come in and then leave. Those folks leave with a negative perception of young folks. If black educators came and decided to leave, they do their work in other domains to support black teaching and learning. So I believe that the classroom is a necessary boot camp for any person of color who wants to do revolutionary work. If you ain't done the work in the classroom with young folks, then you haven't gone to boot camp. You need to go to boot camp if you want to be an enlisted officer in the revolution. These types of steps could potentially lead to a sustainable output of affirmed and effective black teachers that create environments undeniably reminiscent of our legacies of self-help and determination in providing and pursuing education in America. Professor Heather Williams, an early voice in this podcast series and author of the book Self-Taught, African American Education in Slavery and Freedom, explains what this has looked like and does look like today. The idea of self-help, self-determination, so that even if even within a public school system, going in and pushing to have some rights within that system, you know, so that you don't just send your children to school and have them receive whatever it is that somebody decides they should have. And it's tough, but, but also you have outside of the public school system, people who set up Schools, private schools, now I guess it's, it's um, the other model that they're using. But people who said this neglect of children is not good for us and we're going to start our own schools. And so you see in some communities people doing that and having their own schools. I see it here in Philadelphia where I am. And um, so I think keeping in mind that idea of self help and self-determination because it's hard to have self-determination when you're not doing for yourself. And so finding strategies, um, enacting strategies that give you 
more of a hand in what is happening. Jeannie Pupo-Walker, Nashville Public School Board member and Tennessee State Director for the Education Trust, submits that if Latino educators revive, sustain, and expand their traditional approaches to instruction, much of it would reflect an engaging, affirming, and meaningful experience that honors culture and language, whether or not the educators or students were born here. I don't believe that you have to even speak another language in order to be a great English learner teacher. But I do think that it often really helps, um, and especially for new arrival students, to see uh, teachers who might look like them or who, I mean, so much is transmitted beyond just language. It's culture. It is the physical nature of the way the classroom is set up, the way you greet people, the way you understand all of those unwritten rules around how you show respect, how you greet people, all of those things, um, the kind of food you bring into the classroom, the kind of traditions that you celebrate. I think um, when you have a really diverse teacher workforce, you have people who can, you know, just create an environment where all cultures are accepted. And so so I think that just having Latinx teachers, in, and by and large in Tennessee for sure, the vast majority of English learners are Latino students, right? It's something like 85%, 90%. And so clearly if you had teachers, bilingual teachers, ideally, right, who can help speak with families, help families understand the process, particularly um, help engage families, is tremendously helpful. Professors Jeremy Garcia and Valerie Shirley also pursue deep descriptions on what teaching can look like for Indigenous peoples by Indigenous peoples. One of the foundational pieces of um, what we engage our students in from the framework that we embody is this decolonization process. And in that process, we engage our students in critically examining history, contemporary issues, um, impacting us and our identities and our communities. We also engage them in a process of uh, critically examining their own identities by self-reflecting on themselves. And in that self-reflective process, that's when we observe more of the historical trauma that is impacting each of us. And so that, uh, that emotion that comes out is conveyed within, within our discussions. We have numerous discussions in our classes. We have an indigenizing pedagogies course, for example, where we have it planned out where we know that we want to engage the students in a decolonization process. Well, what do we do? We engage them in this history of boarding schools first to examine the fundamental structures that exist within our schools and how they can begin to think critically about how that history has impacted the current schooling structure and how it has continued and how they can confront that and put a stop to some of those practices and to really privilege their indigenous knowledge and values uh, to confront that structure. But I think when we engage in that process, there are numerous tears that are shed within our discussions. And so we have to cultivate them you know, that they're, you know, what's happening, their emotions, and and we have to work through that together. But we also, within this decolonization process, we don't want them to stop there. 
we want them to turn that emotion around into being committed to transforming their communities in positive, transformative ways. And so we work to think about the possibilities of how that can be done through curriculum, through developing our own Indigenous knowledge uh, language and our proficiency within that, and then to really work to incorporate that back into the classroom because that's when and where the healing begins for all of us. And so once we once we have our student our, our teacher candidates engage in this process of decolonization, they know what it feels like. So when it's time for them to pedagogically engage their students in a decolonization process within the elementary school classroom, they know how to navigate that. I, I did a chapter I wrote, uh, on, I wrote a chapter in a book that's, um, for a book that's supposed to be coming out pretty soon. Actually, it's a handbook on critical pedagogies. And within this chapter, I'm calling, it, it's this idea of, of critical indigenous education and practice, uh, uh, the call for critical indigenous teachers. And in there, I kind of map out sort of a uh, culmination of what we've been talking about today. And I think four things that I, I name in that piece is that for educators, this idea of knowing and living our creation stories, uh, returning to those, those, those stories of emergence, uh, that then activate our connection to indigenous epistemologies and ontologies. And the next piece to that is this idea of understanding the context, meaning problematizing Western schooling systems. And the third piece to that is thinking about contemporary spaces of resistance. How does that then inform curriculum and pedagogy as sacred landscapes? And when I talk about, you know, both Valerie and I have another co-authored article around decolonizing pedagogies, uh, and there's where we, we name and sort of this idea of schooling as sacred landscapes. And um, we know that, right, this Western idea of schooling uh, has never been ours, but current times, many of us send our children to these public schooling spaces. So what then is our responsibility to bring in these spaces of resistance like those we named, like the Bears Ears, for example. We could even talk about the Trump Wall that's impacting the Tohonotham community. Those are spaces of resistance. Um, but when we bring those into the narrative, into conversation, into curriculum and pedagogy in the classroom, uh, that's where we're seeing that it becomes a sacred landscape because our youth are then engaging in uh, dialogue and consciousness raising as well as decolonial practices. The last one that I name in this piece is this uh, idea of indigenous teachers as nation builders. How do teachers begin to see themselves uh, in the role of engaging reciprocity through accountability to their ancestors, to their tribal nations, uh, to continue to engage in self-governance uh, engage in self-determination and uh, idea of self-education. So that's kind of what comes to mind uh, in thinking about your question. For me, I'm going to draw on the the work uh, that I published in, it's called the Indigenous Social Justice Pedagogy, Teaching into the Risks and Cultivating the Heart. And in that piece, I mention three different aspects of pedagogy that can cultivate um, social justice within the classroom. The first one, as Dr. Garcia mentioned, is decolonization. And in that process is about 
uncovering history, um, you know, settler colonial impacts on our communities and colonialism right now in today, in this present day. And so, you know, there's stories that are told within that and that are prominent and some are marginalized. And it typically it's those resistance and survivance stories that are marginalized. And so this process of truth telling is also about bringing those stories, narratives, and perspectives into the classroom. And when that happens with, within the truth telling practices that the students are, their emotions are triggered. And so that's when I go into the second um, component of cultivating the heart through indigenous knowledge systems and epistemologies. And so when the students' are, emotions are triggered, then we go back to our indigenous epistemology to engage in this healing process and to in this uh, liberation and empowering emotion that can activate them to work toward change, whether it's individually or collectively. And in that process, it really uh, embodies a sense of agency within them to to promote that sense of empowerment to make change. So the third piece is nation building. And in that it's really about we're as teachers developing leaders within our students. And when they are examining these contemporary issues that are happening within their own communities and they're working for change, they're already the leaders here and now. And so, therefore, you know, also within the teachers, they're creating and developing this curriculum from within. Therefore, they are enacting self-education, self-determination, and tribal sovereignty within their classrooms. When they do that, they are also working toward nation building as well as a whole collectively. So those are three components that I would add as, as, as you mentioned, three norms. I've listened to all these cherished guests over the course of these episodes, and I am still amazed at all the overlap and all the variance between many communities of color, including all the powers they have and all the prohibitions they have faced to teach and learn. I am grateful for online and in-person organizations like Edlock, EduColor, Black Teachers Project, Melanated Educators Collective, Indigenous Education Network, Hip Hop Ed, Latinos for Education, and many others I'm sure I'm missing that are doing their part to reground these overlapping and varying approaches to the forefront, despite the historic and contemporary obstacles we've chronicled in this series. It's important to remember that this isn't just a people of color challenge, but as illustrated in previous episodes, it's an American challenge, and one created by the most empowered Americans. In addition to the work being done within these communities, how can institutions, positions, and networks outside of these communities act as allies to them in efforts to build community-serving, student-pushing, self-affirming educators of color? Some of the answer to this goes back to the institutions that train educators and could potentially upgrade their operations. Dr. Tanji Marshall, Director of P-12 Practice for the Education Trust, dives into what may be required for teacher prep programs to do this work. One of the things I think, and this is absolutely an idealism on my part, is I feel like professors 
of any kind of management, any kind of pedagogy should themselves have a track record of doing that work. You really need to take some time to do the work you're trying to get others to learn. Um, I really am a fan of Laura Robb. I love Laura Robb, right? Because what Laura Robb does, Laura Robb teaches. She actually goes on rotations to teach so that when she is producing knowledge for educators, she's actually producing it from a place of knowledge. She isn't doing it from a place of just theory. So, you know, in theoretical language, she's taking a mixed method approach to helping build knowledge for folks. I think teacher ed prep programs have to do some very, very serious program evaluation. They really do. It starts with evaluating the program. Um, You know, some of the work that we do at Education Trust is we do equity audits. Teacher prep program need to engage in some equity audits, you know, um, and not just equity audits of their outcomes in terms of, you know, doing more than count the bodies, right? Like how many black bodies, how many bodies you have. You need to do more than just count bodies. That's not an equity audit. There needs to be an ideological audit, right? So you count the bodies, yes. You count the professoriate bodies, you count the student bodies, you count the curricular bodies, but then you kick the tires and you ask a whole other set of qualitative questions to get at the ideological bents and the epistemological frameworks and the ontological systems that build the school of education. And then you're able to do some dismantling. And then you're able to recalibrate what's happening through the bodies, right? Like we get really, really excited about body counts. Well, like, you know, the morgue also counts bodies, right? So it ain't, I'm just going to say that right here. They, everybody count bodies, <laughs> right? So we just got to count the bodies and then get under the hood and kick some tires and really get to the ontology, the epistemology and the ideology, because that's the through line that sets the course of action through which these people are sent into the world to tinker around inside the brain of somebody else's child. These are bold recommendations, but I speculate they are only bold recommendations because there would be bold findings. Findings which reports like TNTP's A Broken Pipeline discovered about teacher prep programs nationwide. In general, they aren't doing enough to recruit and retain educators of color further muting the legacies of effectiveness within educators of color communities. Upgrading your recruitment and retention methods is certainly one side of the coin. The other side of that coin is the fact that becoming an educator can cost a person so many coins in so many ways, and often with so little coins coming back in return. Many folks can't afford this. Professor Sonia Douglas Horsford, Black Education History and Policy Scholar, and author of the book Learning in a Burning House, 
educational inequality, ideology, and disintegration, emphasizes the what and how for the recruitment and retention of educators of color in teacher prep programs. We have to make teaching a profession that is respected and valued in this country, first and foremost. But you cannot expect people to want to enter this profession if not being compensated, if they are not being supported, and if their work is not being respected and revered in the way that it should. And I think even more so for teachers of color, because again, um, or for people of color, because there are so many more options now. And in terms of being able to provide for your family, um, to try to accumulate wealth, <laughs> um, you know, teaching is not going to be the best option for many people. And especially for those who may not have the benefit, like um, many of, I would say, some of the um, younger white women who are in the profession who have, you know, maybe another income in the home, right? So there's this kind of gender, race, and class aspect the teaching and who can actually afford to do it. We also see the challenges of um, teachers not even being able to afford to live in the communities that they teach in, which is a problem. So I think that's a bigger structural thing that we need to think about in terms of how we value teachers, how much they're being paid, whether or not they are truly um, able to serve as professionals and not people who are just implementing policies and required to do things the way that policymakers think they should do them. New York Times journalist and author of the book The Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession, Dana Goldstein further explains some of the dimensions of this particular challenge that must be resolved. We're in a situation where more than half the kids nationwide are now non-white. So there's no longer any talking about like minority students and minority teachers. That's not what the next generation looks like in this country. So it's not um, really acceptable anymore to have fewer than 20% of the teachers being non-white, and this is a point of consensus. So there's been a lot of talk about how we fix this. Um, You know, one of the big issues is it's expensive to get your master's degree, and, uh, you know, people of color are more likely to have student debt, and teaching is not a greatly paid job. So, you know, can we do things with forgiving student loans and... Um, also, you know, just what can we do to recruit the best people that we can into teaching? So these are ongoing conversations. When it comes to solving these challenges that bottleneck the development of educators of color, we've touched on what the communities are doing, what the grade schools and colleges are and should be doing, what the state and federal government should be doing. But there's a fourth element for this type of work, an element from which I developed this podcast which is today's education reform nonprofit space. To put it short, most recently during the rollout of the Common Core, much more government and philanthropic dollars were made available to nonprofit initiatives that support education reform from school policy to teacher prep to classroom instruction. They are to work in partnership with education institutions to address some of education's biggest challenges. As you heard in the beginning of this episode, at Unbounded, we primarily focus on providing teachers, coaches, and system leaders with professional development that helps them deliver or support classroom instruction that is grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. As amazing as it's been to see the organization's impact grow nationwide, we are still in a huge pond with other modern ed reform nonprofits assigned to do similar and different things. With the amount of expertise I've seen in each of these, and the amount of money poured into the space, and the amount of diversity I've seen grow in them as well, 
How can we better optimize our services to support the professional growth and affirmation of educators of color in a system that is routinely done the opposite? Professor Wayne Au makes simple and bold recommendations for those in this ed reform space. I think that these kinds of these kinds of organizations um, actually need to be really based in the communities that they claim they're serving. I think mostly they are not. You know, I feel like there's it tends to be uh, mostly a lot of white funders funding nonprofits to go do work to communities. Um, uh, and part of it's because I have a strong commitment to like you know the idea of the public. Right and the public and the serving us all, and so and so I think that um, these kinds of ed reform networks and orgs, like they need to, like they, if they're going to be committed to you know educational equity and racial justice, then they need to be committed to community equity and community justice, and also understand like really what what are the you know what is the role of public education in this country, um, and and you know how can that institution you know, really be, be crafted and, and, you know, shaped in ways uh, that can serve these kids. Cause I actually think that's possible. And I know a lot of folks have sort of given up on public schools and like, all right, I'm out, we're homeschooling or et cetera, et cetera. And I understand uh, folks doing that. Um, but, uh, but I think there, there are, there are already existing um, resources uh, in schools and communities that we're, that we're neglecting. And so I think, I think that, you know, for me, these orgs and these groups, like they, you know, they need to do the stuff that's actually based on real research. If they're going to be doing it right, they need to be partnering with with parents and communities in real ways, not just in terms of like, you know, just having some sort of like, uh, you know, representative person of color or whatever. And like, it needs to be real partnerships um, with these institutions. Uh, to me, I think they should be supporting unions and the teachers' unions as as a really good space for um, actually furthering. Uh, the agendas of racial justice and equity in schools. So we see we have that here in Seattle. Um, so, you know, I think I think there's real possibility for movement to happen. To me, it's just about putting, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, right? If you're really committed to, to race equity and racial justice and education, um, then you need to be doing that, doing that like for real, like the kinds of curriculum, like, you know, the projects that we work with around sort of uh, Black Lives Matter at school week, like these these projects that challenge white supremacy and that frankly actually challenge, you know, uh, capitalistic framing of competition and, and meritocracy and, and that, you know, only the, the best will rise to the top, like all, all that sort of, that sort of mythology that drives so much of, edu- like, so much of education reform in this country. Professor Chris Emden also makes some bold recommendations and assertions for why those who operate in education reform can change things. I think the best thing that they can do is have us make the decisions for us about how to teach us. Um, you know, ed reform organizations that talk about equity, but do not have a full representation with folks of color from communities who are making the decisions about what that equity looks, feels, sounds like, and how that equity should take shape um, are just contemporary forms of age-old practices with better language and discourse and organization mechanisms. If you don't have folks from communities helping you to make decisions and reimagining for you what it's like, and if they don't have the space to be able to be authentic about it, because it's just about having folks of color in there, are folks of color in your organization able to talk freely and truly about what their experiences were and what kids are experiencing today? Then, you know, then, then, they, then they serve the same process as, as larger oppressive practices. I, I believe in that reform. Um, I think education should be reformed. What I don't believe in is uh, educational reform organizations that take the shape of uh, larger oppressive organizations 
under the wrappings and the trappings and the language of um, a revolution while engaging in anti-revolutionary practices. While this accusation may be hard to hear, it is important to remember that historically speaking, and as explored in episode two of this podcast series, nonprofit philanthropy played an important role during and after Reconstruction in steering the direction of educators of color, as opposed to developing and supporting them to serve their own community's interests. We in education reform spaces must remember this if we are to avoid being victims to the legacies of our systems, continuing to patronize and patrol instead of uplift and support. This collective mindset shift requires something that often isn't valued in the rush-filled world of education, time. Elena Aguilar, however, urges that in order for the right mindsets to be developed to effectively do something about this, that's exactly what we need to take. The first thing that comes to my mind often when I think very simplistically about what should we do, what should people do? What should we do? The first thing that comes to mind is to slow down. And part of the reason we need to slow down, part of what we can do if we slow down is examine our assumptions about time and about how long things take. So often when I talk about slowing down and engaging in conversations in which we're telling stories and having space for stories to circle around and not be linear, like giving people space to talk and not, I'm so interested in how often people talk and they say, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Let me get to the point. And I often want to interrupt them and say, you don't need to get to the point. You can ramble, permission to ramble, right? Because this is when we slow down, we can start to see how so much of our thinking, our feeling, our conversations, our relationships have been, to use a general categorizing word, colonized and colonized by the worst thinking, the most dangerous thinking from Western Europe. And because not all of Western Europe has had bad ideas, but some of this that is around dehumanization and valuing certain ways of thinking. So, but, and part of what I want us to unpack when we slow down is, as I said, our notions about time and about what it takes to make change. Because so often when I tell people, let's slow down, let's tell some stories, people say, but the urgency, what our kids are experiencing, what we need to, you know, we've got to, how can we slow down now? Isn't it, what, don't we need to be doing the opposite. And then often I say, well, is what you've been doing working? Is the way that you've been working in schools as a teacher, as a leader, as an external support provider, is that working? Are you seeing the results you want to see? Maybe you're seeing some compliance, but are you seeing the kind of transformation of the children, the community, the the adults in school? And then people are like, well, no, we're not. We have, you know, real high turnover. And in fact, I think I want to quit. So I say, okay, let's slow down. Let's question this assumption this is an assumption that by working harder, working faster, working with urgency, we're actually going to transform our society, transform our schools. Like that, that I'm not seeing that playing out because I've worked with a lot of organizations that consider themselves to be educational reform or transformation committed, and they're not transforming. They're not. They're burned out. They're exhausted. So, you know, I said, like, what should we do? 
think we should slow down and tell some stories. I think we should start with, I think we need to start there. I think we need to question the mental models in which we act. I think we need to be more intentional about selecting how we want to act. I think we need to be more transparent. And I think we need to question how decisions are made and who is making them and what is what constitutes knowledge and authority and who is it who's making decisions. Um, and all of that can only happen if we slow down. As previously noted, slowing things down isn't an easy task for me either. Unfortunately, I can easily fall victim to the moments where the belief that there is no time is either A, a powerful illusion, or B, encourages me to make the choice that has the least equitable outcome. It's a hard situation to be in, but it's one we must be honest about, because if this issue is to be addressed, reform may need something deeper than reform. Sharif El Meki describes what this may look like in the service of better supporting educators of color in their efforts to continue their legacies. So I, I think the the number one thing for folks who are serious about reforming ed and and you know Chris Stewart says we don't we need ed reform as much as we needed uh, slavery reform. You know he's like I wouldn't want to hear anything about reforming slavery, and I don't want to hear anything about reforming education based off the student outcomes that we see. What we needed was eradication and revolutionizing of, you know, of the resistance and changing and, and imagining something new and better, something that actually has um, outcomes for student learning, right? <laughs> so I, but folks who are in the, you know, uh, to use the phrase, ed reform space, first thing they can do is, is, is the experience, they should question and ask about the people who serve, what is their experience in, this nonprofit or in this workshop or in this movement, right? And so the same way that I challenge teachers and educators to ask black children, what is your experience being in my classroom or in my school or in my district? Asking parents, what is your experience of working with, with uh, sending your children to us, being partners or not? You know, um, that, that it should be something very different. It shouldn't have the same bad taste if we're saying it's a it's a reform effort that they had with the status quo, if it leaves the people that were supposedly being served with the same bad taste, with the same distrust, with the same questions, then it's not really reforming. It's just repackaging, you know. And so I think I think that's number one. Um, number two is you have to uh, approach and model a level of cultural humility. You have to understand like, okay, whoever I'm serving, I should ask questions first before I tell them this is what I'm doing. I should ask like, what are the solutions that you have? What are the things that you've thought about? What are the things that you believe are missing, right? And so it should be open to constant feedback. And what should always be centered is, if it's about ed reform, it's about student outcomes. And not just test scores, because too often that's what's looked at with student outcomes. But if you have a child that has, you know, my mother used to say, uh, you know, my mother was a teacher and she said, you know what, knowing how to how to read and write don't matter much if you hate who you are. <laughs> if you, she said, if you don't know who you are and if you hate who you uh, think you are. Right. And so like being, you know, being able to pass a test and have a negative racial identity because of the experience that you had in the, in the ed reform movement, that's that's not a win. That's a win for you and your books and your chart and your 
PowerPoint, Excel, whatever it is that you you are tracking your your wins and your uh, KOPs and your whatever, but but students can't say that you know what I I have uh, the confidence in myself. I know my people's contributions. I see myself in this reform movement, right? Like, why so many reform efforts? You know, um, colorless. There's no people of color in it. So how much of it is actually reforming, right? And so I think, you know, it is absolutely crucial that that if it is any type of reform effort that it, it, it centers, um, you know, the children, the communities, the educators, um, particularly those who've been marginalized the most. And that is every, every chart, study, data set that you look at, that's people of color. Leader of the Equity Literacy Institute and author of several papers and articles, including Avoiding Racial Equity Detours, education activist Paul Gorski also shares his thoughts about what this transformation can look like and what it shouldn't look like. I think the easy thing to do is uh, for organizations, if they want to draw attention and draw people to their websites and that sort of stuff, is to provide simple instructional curricular strategies, lesson plans, those sorts of things. There's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't feed the need you're talking about, which is how do we push back against these racist systems? Uh, so I think, you know, I look like an, I look at an organization like Teaching Tolerance, which used to do that and put out these magazines and have very simple, fluffy sorts of things. And it's kind of shifted into an organization that's trying to provide framework for more structural change. And, you know, I really want to see more organizations get away from here are the 10 strategies or uh, I think we're too obsessed in education with strategies and provide tools that are more comprehensive and more transformative. Uh, that And a, an organization like Rethinking Schools is great because they do both. They, they have pieces where it's like, here's a curricular piece that you can do in your classroom but also this whole issue is themed around racial justice. So we're also gonna talk about bigger structural things. And I think too often those conversations are separated. And when they're separated, people who don't wanna talk about racial justice are gonna opt for here is, you know, how you can, you know, add a couple of books to your curriculum, you know. So, so I think that organizations they say they're about equity and justice have to be about it at the structural level, not just the kind of individual strategy level. It's this level of commitment, I would submit, that not only will be effective, but more importantly, produce trust in a network of orgs and institutions who aren't always easily trusted. 2016 to 2017 Baltimore County Public School System Teacher of the Year, Corey Carter, further explains the need for trust to be established and the ways it can be established. I think one of the roles is providing those tools, helping to kind of fill those, those needs once, you know, for, for someone like myself, when I, when I got in the classroom and realized, and this is not, when I say realize, I don't mean I just had a moment of, of enlightenment or an epiphany. Like it was mainly my students who, helping me realize, unfortunately, I wish it, it didn't rely on them, but, you know, there are some things that I learned through students, and then there are also some things I learned through some of the great educators around, but once you get to that point and you see, you know, these are, these are some areas that I need to grow in, and I need to grow very quickly, 
right? Or, or I need to start this journey of a thousand miles. I need to start my one step right now. So what's my first step going to be? You, you need to have those sound resources, those trustworthy communities to tap into. So I think that that is a vital role that the networks and organizations can play. And then I also think in supporting the developing leaders and the the voices that are starting to break out, they, they need tools as well, but they also need support. So I think the networks and organizations can support the burgeoning leaders in their individual systems and, and how they can continue to push these school systems and to ask for more and to elevate the voices of their students and the, and the concerns and the needs of their students so that we can, you know, see these changes come to fruition. When we talk about, excuse me, when we talk about the outcomes of recruitment and retention efforts, you need people in positions of power who can continue to push those efforts. And oftentimes, the people in positions of power are following an agitation from a larger group. You have a grassroots effort that is pushing these people, and that takes resources, that takes knowing how to effectively organize and how to get these messages to the right ears so that you can see these actually being taken. The other thing, too, is I personally, I feel like there's a big need for affinity spaces. Anytime you're navigating a system that can be oppressive, oppressive system, you need community. As humans, we are communal people. We are communal organisms. So we survive. We are healthiest when we can connect, right? Human connection is is one of the most powerful parts of our daily lives and our experiences. So in navigating an oppressive system, communities are vitally important. It is through these upgrades, renovations, reformations, transformations, and perhaps more that can lead the education reform space into one that supports the diversification of the profession. Not by calling their educators of color sister, brother, chica, or anything like that, but through actual structural and interpersonal changes. It all sounds daunting, but Elena Aguilar reminded me of a simple but powerful truth. We talk about the system. We have to remember people made the system. People are the system and people can change the system. And so often, I think one of the biggest lies that many of us have bought into is around how much power and agency we have. And so people say, you know, well, (laughs) years and years, I've heard people say, you know, well, we can't do that. And I was raised by in a family that told me to question everything, like everything my mother ever said. Why? Why do I have to do that? Why can't I do this? And so, you know, I think that that um, the more that we can do to reclaim our imaginations and to expand and express those, the more we'll find answers to the problems that are that feel so unresolvable in our systems and institutions. And we just have to, uh, systems were made by people, we can change them. At times, a problem is only as complex as our feelings and devotion to fixing it. The ancestral devotions to create and share information adhered to by different communities of color in this country have had to go toe-to-toe with a systemic and cultural devotion to dilute, annihilate, or appropriate those ways of teaching and learning. Despite the physical, intellectual, and financial onslaught, instructional and communal strength remains in our communities. Although they remain, 
The oppression and contribution of educators of color, past and present, is seldom explored and rarely understood. How could teaching and learning be different if it was? In my reflection of all the past, present, and future contributions and oppression of educators of color, my devotion will remain in knowing a personal truth that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, we have to know three things. One, we have to know that we are part of an educational system that upholds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, we have to know that being in this system means that we are participants in it and are therefore accountable for our contributions. And most importantly, three, using our systemic awareness, coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, context, and instruction, will not only allow us to be non-complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. Well, it's been a crazy ride as we have traversed across time over the course of this series, but all rides must come to an end. Thank you so much for being a co-learner with me. It has been nothing but an honor. We still invite you to open your communities up to discuss these issues regarding education in America. How does education reform need to tackle systemic racism within its own movement? How do teacher preparation programs tackle systemic racism within their own institutions to promote educators of color without miseducating them? What can you do to hear and amplify voices of color in your local school setting? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank the executive producer for this episode, Lydia Ramos Mendoza. I would like to thank our episode editors at LLRM Creativa and our folks at Integral Ed. I would also like to thank our last episode's guests, Professors Wayne Au, Heather Williams, Sonia Douglas Horsford, Jeremy Garcia, Valerie Shirley, Chris Emden, author Elena Aguilar, journalist Dana Goldstein, Sharif El Mecki, Dr. Tanji Marshall, school board member Jeannie Pupo Walker, author and historian Vanessa Siddle Walker, equity warrior Paul Gorski, and grassroots educator Corey Carter for sharing their time wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until the next time we cross paths virtually or in person, I wish you all fair learning journeys. Peace and progress. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unboundedorg for resources such as our free, high-quality curriculum and the Anti-Bias Toolkit, a three-part guide for facilitating conversations about race, bias, and privilege among teachers and leaders. We also encourage you to go deeper into equitable instructional practices by attending one of our new interactive virtual summits. You can also visit unboundedorg forward slash virtual summit to learn more about how you can bring the experience straight to your school, district, organization, or entire state. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain Promoting Authentic Engagement and Rigor Among Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Students by Zaretta Hammond If you listen, we will stay. 
why teachers of color leave and how to disrupt teacher turnover by the education trust. Our stories, our struggles, our strengths, perspectives and reflections from Latino teachers by the education trust. So much reform, so little change by Charles M. Payne. Ratchet Demick, reimagining academic success by Chris Emden. A broken pipeline, teacher preparations diversity problem by TNTP. Pathways to teaching, creating a new generation of community responsive teachers by Dr. Margarita Bianco, and Respecting Educator Activists of Color, The Anti-Racist Guide to Teacher Retention by the Center for Black Educator Development. Thank you again for tuning into The Complexion of Teaching and Learning. Welcome to the B-Side Conversation of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, where we have focused conversations with one educator of color to discuss both their unique and common experiences exploring the navigation of and contributions to this American education space. And our B-Side Conversation guest today is an education leader I hold in high regard. Uh, Jason Epstein is a passionate and transformative leader, dedicating his life and career to ensuring that underserved communities receive the standard of excellence that they truly deserve. Um, he spent over two decades as a teacher, coach, principal, head of school and consultant. Um, he's a Chicagoan who uh, blossomed this career in Nebraska and Iowa, but then really started moving and shaking in New York City, um, Harlem in particular, or Harlem as, 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 they, as they pronounce it uh, down there. Um, and so as a teacher and director of Student and Family Affairs, uh, he was also a principal and alumni engagement officer. He transformed the schools in terms of both instruction and culture for the staff and students. He was big on restorative justice and restorative classroom practices to transform the culture, um, while also simultaneously, emphasis on simultaneously implementing standards aligned curricular frameworks and data teams to transform the instruction. Um, he's also independent consultant, um, developing and leading professional development for leaders and teachers in anti-racist best practices. Um, he's a professional coach. <clears throat> he is a workout anime enthusiast. He's an activist, a father, and just an overall good dude. What's up, Jason? How you doing, bro? What's up, Brandon? Thank you for the warm introduction. I appreciate it. And it's just an honor to be sitting here with you and have an opportunity to, have to share this space with you. Yeah, man. No, it's uh, when when you when you joined us on board. One of the first things I thought about was like, oh, I gotta get this brother on because um, I, I just really appreciate the walk of like going through all the rungs in education and finding success in all of them. Um, and and you know, obviously having this conversation, do, doing some research, I find out some other things, including uh, relatively uh, recently that you are a co-author in a recently released book, Fighting the Good Fight, Narratives of the African-American Principalship, which is highly aligned to what this podcast has been about in terms of looking at the legacies and current experiences of educators of color that are unique in contribution and unique in challenges that they face. So can't wait to dive into that book, bro. Yes, I can't wait and to dissect it with you. And I'm a co-author alongside other authors. Uh, it's written by Isaac C. Carrier, uh, Dr. Isaac C. Carrier, and then Dr. Aaron J. Griffin. Um, and they, those brothers brought me on and brought in on 34 others. So now I feel like I have another cohort and another team of mm. people that I can lean on to do this work well, because we're ever evolving in this work. And it's good to have other people 
uh, to lean on, just like we've leaned on each other since I've known you. No doubt. No doubt. Um, and you said 34? Did you say 34? 34 other authors. So there's 35 chapters, one written by, um, one written by each Black author uh, from all over the country. Um, and they're, and right now it's um, one of the number one sellers of books uh, currently on Amazon. So it's actually cool. Everybody should check it out. Well, I got me mine. So, <laughs> um, and, and when you say 34, and when I hear the question, where are the Black educators? How can we engage and and, and and recruit and retain. Well, there's 34 in one book that you can probably reach exactly. out to. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, if we're thinking about things strategically, like me personally, it's like me having personal relationships with these 34 authors, even though yeah. I have other people I have, Broughton's, how, how, uh, the experiences that I have, just reading their chapters helped me be a better leader, maybe even a better father, maybe even a better activist, better whatever. Um, they have some deep stories in here. Some are spiritual even. I just think yeah. that the way that it was written was actually really great. And it it shows that if anybody who ever says there's not black leaders out there or there's no black leaders who are qualified enough to do this thing that you think they can do, I'm, I'm going to challenge that narrative and tell you that we are there. And you probably have some in your own school that need to be developed that can do this work. You just have to have the right mindset and the right lens as how you see them. No doubt. And, and, and you need to know um, the networks and organizations, uh, formal or informal of um, educators of color, or in this case, black educators and principals that are already connected. Like that it's such a beautiful thing to know that 34 people wrote that book because it reminds me a bit of uh, one of my favorite points uh, throughout the uh, arc of this podcast where um, Vanessa Siddle Walker's research spends so much time looking at the history of like black education networks um, and, and, and folks that were connected, sharing best practices, uh, sharing experience, sharing uh, techniques and, 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 and best strategy in terms of leading school buildings and, and navigating policy that was really rich post reconstruction and pre Brown versus board. Mm -hmm. um, and and to, to see and to know that um, in your network alone, you, you're able to you know have be a co-author in a book of 34 other principals and/or education leaders. That's that's rich and important because it's 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 hard enough to navigate in this modern system being an educator of, of color, but then it's another layer of difficulty to make connections with others outside of our most immediate you know school building or district or whatever. So. It, but it does happen and folks can't pretend like it doesn't happen and it just needs to be expanded and expounded. I agree wholeheartedly. I think another thing that I would encourage people who are exploring these networks or want to know where to start, it may start with um, a professional development you're at. If mm. All of us probably heard of the nod, right, that we've read about. Um, <laughs> I find myself spaces sometimes I'm in are predominantly white, I'm always looking and trying to find uh, other people who look like me, but I become very vulnerable and I've become um, more approachable, especially to the people of color, especially black, um, black educators, because I want to make that connection and I just have to get a, rid of any facades that I may think or want to put on and just go and say, hey, can I just have a conversation with you? I just appreciate seeing your face. 
let, let's wrap. And I, and I think that I've gotten a lot of people that way too. So, and yeah. that's opened up big doors. I think that this is how this door got opened up for me, to be honest with you, was just having no. the, um, just having the courage to walk up to somebody else and say, Hey, like, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I see you, I feel you. Um, and it's, so we have our black leadership educational nod that we have. So it's cool. No doubt. Hey, the nod word. Yep. That's, that's real. Um, in your coming up and as you're learning these things, I know that a very critical place for you to be kind of learning the spoken and unspoken things about being an educator and of being a black educator in this space. Um, a lot of it was grounded in uh, Harlem and in particular, a, Har a Harlem charter school. And I remember me coming up in a traditional, quote unquote, traditional public school. There was a lot of anti-charter conversation. But then later on, I learned out, learn and get a bigger view that, you know, that binary can be very false, right? There's good and bad in both traditional and charters. And also one thing I did notice and learn later on is that charters are actually better at recruiting and retaining educators of color. There were some reports that have shown that a couple of times over the past couple of years. So I want to know what was your experience of like coming up as an educator in a charter school uh, network and what were like the strengths and challenges that you noticed um, and what's your refl general reflections on your experience uh, through charters that people outside of charters may not understand? Yeah, that's a really good question. I appreciated both coming up in a traditional public school, but in Harlem specifically, um, having the opportunity to work for a net network um, of charter schools that um, had a vision and belief that aligned with me, right? So um, how I know that there's a binary talk and it's still happening. Like 10 years ago, this conversation was a little bit more heated, um, but yeah. the conversation is actually still evolving in different places. And since both public schools are evolving and charter schools are evolving, what I'm noticing now is we don't want to have the, we want to think of it as a Venn diagram. Like, there's good things about one, there's good things about the other, and then there's things in the middle that, that they share. Um, and sometimes it's from school to school, and then other times it's from a big network. So if you look at it from my point of view, a charter school, I was in a charter school network, we only had five schools. New York Department of Education has many schools. So when we're comparing the two, we're talking about one little thing and then one huge thing. I bet you I could find six schools in the Department of Education that I think are excellent schools. So I just want to say that out loud yeah. so that people understand that teaching, leading, being a part of a school system, whether you're the lunch person or you are a custodial staff or you are a para or you're a teacher, you're the principal, you're the CEO, all of it is very important. Um, however, I will say my experiences growing up was um, there was this this thought that like charters are better than the public school systems and we most people base that on test scores. Um, yeah. That's kind of a, a dangerous thing to do because what happens is it starts to attract elitism which leads to a little bit more racism than you would find in some of the, the um, Department of Education schools. So yeah. I will agree that most charter schools can really get black and brown people. They have money that you can use for roles to actually recruit for that. I mean, like two hmm. people on the recruiting team looking for especially black men. Like we had those kind of things because we thought they were important. Um, however, we had a long, we still have a long way to go um, in charter schools of retaining more um, 
black and brown teachers because once they get in, we still fight the powers of white supremacy inside of it, like the sense of urgency or um, every what I've seen a lot in some charter schools is that it's really difficult for black women to stay because mm. there's a perception of them of being angry or be, not mm. being cooperative and those things. And I've seen it with my own eyes. And it's yeah. just like, it's unfortunate that you would say that the school that's designed to mirror the 99% black and brown kids, and then we start to try to mirror it with our staff, that the staff still goes through these things of white supremacy, even if they're the teachers in, uh, if it's predominantly black or brown. Um, so that's some things that I learned. Uh, but some of the great things were we had autonomy to change things. We always stood up and said, hey, everything has to be grade level or above. Um, so it was really great to have like this sense of like this, what I'm doing is important in our charter school network. However, what I would say is that some of the same issues that you'll find in the public school, you'll find in charter school. So there's not a magic fit anywhere. Um, I saw more um, assimilation techniques for students like like control and compliance in a mm. charter school than i would see at a public school why i don't want to see kids like fighting and hurting each other in one sense i don't also want to see a bunch of kids in uniforms walking in a line silently or eating their lunch silently and we mm. had autonomy to do that kind of stuff or to micromanage their their um their behaviors right so we had a demerit system which um, I, I helped to change with our group, but I mean, that was oppressive. I mean, I was calling out every little thing you can do wrong. Then I started being like, who, who really wants somebody in eight different classes telling you what you're doing wrong all the time and didn't have any, any plans to tell you what you did right? So there is a lot, but I've learned all that stuff I learned at the charter school. And now I feel that now consulting with other schools, they're at a place we were. They don't have to have demerits and rewards in order to get kids to learn. I think that's a racist thought. Um, I think that there's genuine ways to get people to want to learn. And we can use these in any kind of school, including homeschools, including um, different um, learning centers and those things. Uh, Gloria Lassen Buildings has a framework for this. And I forget all the tiers of involvement, but like there are like uh, <laughs> um, teachers. Then there are, in my book, there are teachers there are educators and there are educator activists, right? Mm -hmm. And from what I gathered about you, you're in that latter category yeah. where you're gonna be uh, in school buildings or in educational institutions, but there's also going to be a community involvement that's in, 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 in involved in uh, how you kind of show up as, a, as an educator. Mm -hmm. um, can you, uh, I guess, explain to folks what it means to be an educator activist um, and how how the identities of activism and being a teacher and educator can overlap. Right. Thank you for asking that question, because I think it's the premise of how I like came into the space of education. I think that if you deeply care about people and you think that they're um, designed for greatness, you think that they're destined for greatness and they have the opportunity to, regardless of what their skin color is, regardless of what their socioeconomic class is. Um, if you can walk around and look at people and be like, look, I see something in you. You might see something in me, but when I walk around and I think about that and you move in that kind of way that they have something to provide, they're great. I just think that when you walk around like that, like you have 
more chances of getting making your goals as an educator than you ever could if you're just coming in to do something for someone or do something to someone. Um, as an educator activist, the reason why I think I've morphed in like every day trying to get better at being an educator education activist is that I feel like, again, that word liberation comes up. It's just like the first book that really sparked my attention was lies that my teacher told me. Right. I remember my cousin gave me yeah. that book and I, I remember I loved school, though. I loved to please teachers. I love to see the A's. I love the competitiveness of it. I mean, in, in school, I just like I just liked it because I knew I can excel regardless of what people thought of me. Even like I was just like, shoot, I'm just going to do it. I don't care what you guys think about me. Um, but when I started to hear like how learning and shaping who you actually are can be happen in a school and, I, and someone gave me a book that made me feel this way for the first time, I felt like I wanted to help other people find what their, per, their passions were, what their purpose is, and just expose them to, to understanding that they're great, that they, they can have so much power and they can have so much uh, empathy and they can um, really shake the world. So my thing is like, I'm always looking at the long run, like uh, Gloria Lansing Billings talk about, with culturally relevant teaching. Um, I'm really trying to make sure people are firm that they can do great things, especially if they are passionate about what they want to do. Um, and I want people to have that freedom and that liberation to be who they're supposed to be and not just fit into a system. If that makes sense. No doubt. No doubt. And, um, you know, I think that can look a wide variety of ways. I, it was interesting um, in getting to know you through conversations and through some research for the podcast. Uh, I see your way um, is, is um, being immersed in the actual community that's reflective of the community you want change. Like, so <clears throat> um, a hot button, and this is actually a hot button topic amongst educators of color. And I think professionals of color in general, the, the idea of moving out the hood or the city Right. You Ooh, get yes. you become. Yeah. Yep. No, it's definitely we're, we're going there. It's definitely like, you know, you many times we come up in 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 environments that we will not want to experience again, um, you know, or may not want for our kids. So when we survive what we survive, we get the job or the profession or the, or the vocation that we want. But at the same time, it involves working with folks who live in environments that we often have survived. Mm -hmm. So there's the choice. Do you stay in that environment and, and work or do you leave that environment and still work and serve? Right. Um, and that that's often uh, uh, the, the debate. Um, right. And I've known educators to do both. I've done the move out. Like I'm really close, <laughs> but I still moved out. Um, and I know that your family chose to live in Mott Haven, which is like the heart of the South Bronx. Yes, right? yes. Um, so what is that? What has it meant for you and the community that you live with to be an educator who lives with the folks that you serve or the the, the community in large that you serve? Right. That's it. That's a great topic to discuss because I have a lot of, and as I still try to formulate how I actually feel about it, um, I don't, I would never try to tell someone who has gone through complex trauma in a, in a place to keep going back to that trauma because it's the right thing to do. I would never tell anyone that. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's 
um, empowering for the person. If you really think about what their trajectory and their purpose is, where you live does actually make make a difference, um, and where you have your peace actually makes a difference. I would be lying if I said that I didn't I, that if I didn't say there's times I didn't feel that I didn't have some peace while I was already trying to the very community that I'm trying to work alongside and uplift that I didn't feel like some some different parts where I'm just like disappointed, hurt, um, had my heart broken a couple times over and over. However, what I'd say is my own personal story is the reason why my family and I decided to be here is I feel like it was my life calling to uplift my communities. I've always looked, like I said, the nod for me has been since I'm from Chicago to New York or Chicago to Nebraska to New York, I've always looked for this um, affirming of our people, right? Black liberation, black beauty, um, black power, all those different things. And because that's something that's ingrained in me by the way I was raised and what I've been taught and what I've been attracted to, I feel that I have contributions to this community that I can't do if I'm somewhere else right now. Um, quick little story is, um, so we, we do have a house here. And um, right now, like many other places, my haven is um, becoming more gentrified, actually. So it's like, it's still the South Bronx and like, we still got our things. You're, you know, we got everything, right, 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 but right. it's like, but if you look around, you can see the gentrification is happening. People are coming and trying to buy properties and those different things. And what comes behind gentrification, like what happened in Harlem or what happened even in Chicago when projects were busted down and they're spread out, some things happen, right? So people are displaced. So that's my activism that I don't think that people should be displaced. Um, but I have a bench right outside my house and it's a welcoming bench. The way we look at it is like, if you need anything or you just need to talk to somebody, you need somebody to rap to, or you just need a place to just put your, set your body or here, I'll, I'll just say it. Like if you feel like you're too intoxicated to be moving around, just go ahead and have a seat. I'd rather you be safe yeah. than anything else. That bench has been one of the pillars to our, us building relationships, um, having people and talking to people who've been grieving, people who need help with, um, with basic needs and items that they couldn't say anywhere else. We've had opportunity and been blessed to be able to um, have people be able to live out our purpose just because a bench was sitting there and then the people were there. So me personally, I was like, that gives me energy. That makes me wanna wake up every day and do things. Um, that's my energy. However, I would say that if somebody is suffering from complex PTSD, meaning every day you're walking to school and you think you had to take a knife to school every day because you're more apt to get robbed by somebody that looks like you than somebody else. And that's something that you're still holding on to. Um, I want my people to heal too, and they may need yeah. a different space to heal. But this is my purpose, this is my driven, my mission. And like the seven habits, like if that's not your circle of uh, commitment, then you, if you can't engulf yourself in the community and be that, you can still support that community in other ways, especially with the right. educational. So that's the way I look at it. And um, I don't think anybody should be shamed for leaving the hood. But while we're teaching the kids, though, this is the one that's the most important, though. If you have an opportunity to have the kids think of other people in their neighborhood as not um, deviants, that they also possess power and purpose, that if, they, if given the opportunity, they do really well, that while you're moving towards your life and trying to do the best you can, there's people who are at very different stages. But if they did have opportunities to grow, that they have great things about them, even though they're in the toughest spots. I think that you'll see your people differently and you move differently in your neighborhood, right? So, um, 
I think I like the idea of like, when I talk to my students now about like, I'm leaving the hood and this and that, I'm like, hey, just remember, like, if you're a rose that grows from concrete, there's still a, like, if it's all of us together, it's a rose garden. So let's, let's mm -hmm. be very careful what power we can have to like help transform and bust some of those. Don't let me get too far in this, but the political systems that are still, still hurting us today um, the narratives from even our politicians who are close to us who are saying different things, but they don't mean it. And then also um, just like trying to blame us for the behavior that's happening without taking right. accountability for all the other stuff that led us here. Um, those That kind of knowledge is power. And I think that our kids have become activists now growing into their adulthood because we did that at school. We did that because we had them in front of us. It was not, we didn't miss the opportunity to um, affirm them and have meaningful learning experiences around who they are, their communities, and how even my best athlete, he plays at Georgia right now, like how he helped eradicate asthma in his neighborhood because he had asthma, mm -hmm. but he was the best athlete I've ever had. And he was just like, how do I run safely? And he just got on fire about it. Now look at what he's doing. So it's, it's those kind of moments that I just feel like, yo, like everybody has a purpose and um, but I'm not jumping to everybody's situations outside either. That's the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not jumping yeah. in. Like, I, I, I pick and choose uh, where I have my impact. And usually I talk to other fathers and they see me with my kids and that kind of stuff and helping kids and that kind of stuff. So and my wife is has a mommy's group, um, like a Haven mommy's group um, to help women have an opportunity to speak and, and learn about other school choice options and also home birth options and that kind of stuff. So it's cool. It's it's interesting in hearing you speak. It's it's tying me back to again a lot of the legacies that I've noticed to be true about um, educators of color in this country is there's often this mission oriented, um, I guess, approach that's multifaceted, right? Um, it's not just about which as important as it is. Um, it's not just about teaching a specific content. It's about using the ability to teach a specific content to be an advocate for that particular community or student along with other avenues of being an advocate, right? You mentioned several in terms of, uh, you know, birth advocacy or in terms of uh, just physical safety advocacy or mm -hmm. athletic advocacy, right? Like there, there are all these other routes of serving. Um, and I, I've noticed that with educators of color and in terms of this debate of where to live as a result like I've seen people orient themselves to I guess customize their mission around whatever their choice ends up being mm -hmm. right like because to be ge geographically in a separate place you could still be psychologically there or geographically there but just not have that be your home base right um so it's it's definitely been an interesting thing and I'll probably be asking that question a lot more because I know that's a big uh, question with uh, with us in terms of uh, what we do when we uh, you know reach a economic or professional status. So with that being said, man, like B side is unfortunately a very short side of the of the podcast, but I am honored. What's that again? We did a C and D and E side. Yeah, for real, for real. It was a multi-cassette, multi-cassette uh, uh, purchase right here. Um, but I am grateful that this is the last B side for the narrative arc of the complexion of teaching and learning. The po podcast will continue. 
in other ways and forms, but this was technically the last episode. So I'm very grateful that we're able to uh, talk about these things and talk about them with you. Um, and there's one last question I'd like to ask. Um, and I've been asking it um, for all my B-side guests. Who is your favorite educator in person? Somebody that you actually meet, met, or regularly, you know, uh, encounter or did encounter? And who's your favorite educator in print? Somebody who haven't met, but you read about or read their stuff all the time, and you've learned a lot through that, through their letters. Um, I'll start with the person I haven't met and I won't get to, but I, um, his work lives on. Um, it's Dr. Seabee. Um, yeah. I'm really like into like, again, liberation from like medication and all those other things and like taking care of our body and doing what we we're meant to do. So I read a lot of his work. I'm learning a lot more. Um, my brother went to Yusha Island, which was dope, like that he had opportunity to go there like after Dr. Seabee was, uh, had passed, but um, to see what legacy he left and like how we can push that forward, especially around health and how we eat getting rid of mucus in our body. I would say, interestingly enough, I've met a lot of great educators. I've had like the craziest, craziest opportunities to like meet people and I'm like, I have no problem being like, if I wasn't married and have a bunch of kids, I would like follow them around in a van. Um, but one person <laughs> I like, had had an opportunity like to sit with and actually like, I think part of it because he validated my work too and we saw each other was uh, Ron Berger. Um, he does a lot of work around leaders of their own learning. Um, I think it's, and he's got a, other couple of books that I've used. And um, I just had the opportunity to like work with him in our workshop format to teach my teachers. And I hadn't had that opportunity before. And it was really cool to learn more about expeditionary learning, learning more about um, things that I think are cool. Cause I love traditions, like for everything, especially for my family and my schools. It's just cool. Cause I, I think I learned a lot about why we do traditions, why we have like rites of passage and that kind of stuff. So I really appreciated his uh, leaning forward with me and he saw my enthusiasm, I think, and we really connected. So uh, I'd like to work with him again, actually. What's up, man? You gave me gave me um, a, a new research point <laughs> for sure. You said Ron, Ron Berger? Yeah, Ron Berger. Um, he wrote the book, um, Leaders of Their Own Learning. And he also wrote the book, Learning That Last. Um, mm. And that actually had one of my teachers featured in that book too. So it was like cool, cool. to see it all manifest. And it was like, and that teacher is a beast too. Um, yeah, and I'm in contact. With, and that's the other thing I, I would, in our thing, if you get a chance to put this in, is like all the relationships you build with activism and all the relationships you build with like having a mission in mind and knowing that other people have their own missions and it's not my, not, not necessarily my mission. I feel like I've had lifelong relationships with all of these people mm -hmm. um, that I can call them anytime and we just pick up where we left off. And it's real, like it's um, from my teachers to the parents of students because of the things we had to talk about to get because the conversations are different when you're talking about life and purpose. If you're talking about that kid didn't get their homework done, well, it's a lot more when you're collaborating with a teacher, like, hey, or collaborating with a teacher and a parent and say, your child didn't get their homework done. What's going on? Is there anything we can do to help? Cool. Oh, okay, here's our plan then. You say this, I say this, you say that. And then, you know, it used to be so fun. Now I like still get calls from parents like, you remember that time we got the, I mean, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, but it's been a, a blessing and it's like, I didn't do anything to deserve it. I wish 
you know, this was my privilege. I like because of the way I am, I get this opportunity to see my work manifested. I'd never thought I would. And some of my setbacks have let me see some of those things. And I'm like really grateful and I'm going to keep going. Um, I'm not giving up now. Word, word up. That perseverance, that classic, classic, classic perseverance from educators of color. Man, Jason, it's it's awesome to know you. It's awesome to work with you. And it was definitely awesome to uh, talk with you more in depth about these things. Um, thank you very much for being uh, the final B-side guest on the complexion of teaching and learning. Um, for those who are listening, thank you um, for checking out the complexion of teaching and learning and staying tuned into the B-side. Um, if you haven't checked out the previous episodes, please do. I'm sure you will be learning a lot of our education system and uh, what folks of color have been doing uh, in it and despite it. Um, and please check out Fighting the Good Fight, Narratives of the African-American Principalship, of which Jason Epting is a co-author. So thanks again, y'all. Peace and progress. Peace.